Well, today we're continuing with part two of the message that I started last week, what to do when the end is near. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 19 again here in just a minute or two, if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, and it will also be on the screen behind me. Last week, I started out by addressing the questions that can arise from verse 7 of our text, where Peter wrote that the end of all things is at hand. And I shared how Peter was not wrong, even though 2,000 years later, the literal end of the age still has not uh, occurred. I recommend if uh, you've read that verse and have a question about it and you weren't here last week, that you would go online and listen to last week's message and uh, find out what was shared about that. And I'll just say uh, that that is a good practice just generally if you're not able to be in church to uh, go online and stay up to date if this is your church home. And then last week I also shared that However you want to think about the end being near, whether we rightly acknowledge that we've been in the last days since the time of Christ, or you believe that the end of the age is uh, actually close to being upon us, or if you want to think of the end being near simply as the fact that the end is always near for people who only get about 80 years or so uh, on this planet. What, however you want to think about that, Peter's basic answer to what we should do when the end is near is that as believers, we should continue to do what we should have always been doing. We should continue to do what we're always supposed to be doing. The end being near doesn't result for Christians, at least it shouldn't, in some radical change in how we conduct ourselves but rather should result in us remaining committed to the things that we have always been committed to. As people who always live in the light of eternity, no matter what definition of the end being near we want to go with, our conduct should be consistent. Again, we always live in the light of eternity. Every single minute of every single day, Christians are supposed to be people who look at all of life in the light of eternity. You might say that we are eternity people. We're eternity people. And so last week, we saw in our text that what we're to do when the end is near is that we are to be clear-minded and self-controlled. And while there are many applications for those two admonitions for believers, Peter most specifically appealed for believers to be clear-minded and self-controlled for this reason, so that we can pray as we ought to pray. People who live in the light of eternity, eternity people, are to be praying people. We found out last week that praying people are so because they are people who desire to discover the will of God for their lives and they desire to receive God's guidance for their lives. For whatever it is they're facing, they want God's guidance for that situation. They're people who realize that until the end literally arrives and Christ returns, that we need Him, we need His help, we need His strength, we need his guidance for the things that we face in life, and so we go to him in prayer. 
And we found that people who live in the light of eternity, eternity people, are people who through prayer come to the place where they're able to say with confidence in God, no matter what the circumstances are that they're facing, they're able to say to God, your will be done. God, whatever I go through in life, whatever challenges or difficulties come or that are already facing, as long as your will is being done, I know I'm going to be okay, so God, your will be done. And then we wrapped up last week by uh, acknowledging that when we get to that place where we're honestly able to say, God, your will be done, that that is a place of peace. That, that when we're able to say that, it is a place of peace. And so when the end is near, we're to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray. That's a, a brief recap of last week. And now today we're going to go on and we're going to consider five more things that Peter tells us to do when the end is near. We find them in chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. I'm going to read those verses and you follow along as I do. Here we go. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. That's all the further we got last week. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Can we say amen to the word of God? Amen. amen. You guys are really tired this morning. So I'm going to give you one other chance. Could you say amen to the Word of God? Amen. Thank you. I know you... Well, all right. So five things that we're to do as people who live in the light of eternity. We find the first one in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. What a powerful and needed verse of Scripture that is. 
I want you to notice the strong language here. Spoken to believers, keep this under in mind, spoken to believers under a lot of pressures. Above all. What's all mean? Everything. Above everything, love each other deeply. Above all. This sounds like a pretty important point that Peter is making here. And it's not surprising that he would make this point with the believers because here is what he had been taught by Jesus himself. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If. It wasn't certain that it was going to happen. If you love one another. Love for other believers is an absolute imperative of the Christian life. It is required. It is Christianity 101. And the love we're to have for each other is not a shallow love. We're to have a deep committed love for each other. We're to love each other even when it requires great effort to do so. <laughs> We're still to love each other. Barclay writes of this verse, Christian love is not an easy sentimental reaction. This is what our culture thinks love is. Across the board, whether it's romantic love or friendship, whatever it is, society thinks it's a sentimental thing. It's not a sentimental thing. Barclay goes on and writes, it demands everything an individual possesses of mental and spiritual energy. Loving our brothers and sisters is a taxing, tiring endeavor. And yet we are called to do it. We see that here where Peter says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love deeply. Love so much that you're willing to cover over a multitude of sins. Now, Here's what I don't think Peter is saying. I don't think that Peter is telling them to overlook immorality in the church. I don't think he's saying, hey, if your brothers and sisters are out there just doing all kinds of godless things, love just covers over all of that. I don't think that's what he's saying. Though, of course, Christian love does include loving brothers and sisters who, who err in such areas, extending grace to brothers and sisters who err in such areas. But what I think he's saying here 
is that Christian love is love that endures being wronged by brothers and sisters. And continuing to love in spite of the hurts that come as a natural byproduct of human beings interacting with each other. And we see this show up other places in Scripture. And a really important application of this type of love is found in Proverbs 19.11, which says this. This is the English Standard Version. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. The evidence of the past year and a half has revealed that many believers think that the imperative to practice sacrificial love that covers over sins and overlooks offenses is an optional aspect of faith. I have a friend who has lost about half of his church over the past year. This is one of the most gentle, gracious men that you would ever want to meet. He has lost about half of his church over the past year because Christian people have become angry at him, at the church, either over COVID-19 or racial tensions or the presidential election. They have turned against their church and pastor who loved them really well and led them in a Christ-centered, biblical direction across years and years and years. We are to love even when it's difficult and it requires effort. We're to love in a way that overlooks offenses and even covers over sins. And yet for some, a political difference is too much to love through. A difference of opinion about racial matters is asking too much to love through. Differences of opinion on COVID-19 protocols have been too much to love through. And that kind of story has played out across churches all across the country. We've actually fared pretty well here. We've had a little bit of this, but we've fared pretty well. But this has played out all across the country. People who claim to love their brothers and sisters until they found out that their brothers and sisters thought differently about COVID or thought differently about George Floyd or thought differently about Donald Trump or thought differently about Joe Biden. And then suddenly that was too much. And they didn't just respectfully interact about it, but they became angry and they divided over it. I have seen this similar type thing play out in this church over and over again throughout the years. Here's how it works. 
people across multiple years profess their great love for the church. And of course, that's the people, but often when people say that, they're talking about whatever we think of as the institution of the church, but they profess their love for the church and the people that make up the church. And then one thing happens that they don't like. One. One. Just one thing happens that they don't like. And that one thing is too much to bear. Too much to love through. And so they become angry. Sometimes they become nasty. They almost always take their ball and go home. I'm glad you're laughing. (laughs) Here is something that is supposed to be true, friend. It, it, It actually is true, but we don't live like it's true. We're supposed to live like this. Christian love isn't fragile. Christian love is not fragile. Christian love doesn't end over a single offense. Christian love, according to Peter, covers over a multitude of sins. A multitude of being wronged. When people get mad and nasty and lash out and leave a church over a single instance of an offense or being wronged or not even being wronged but perceiving that they were wronged, let me tell you what's happened in that situation. Self-proclaimed Christian people have failed at Christianity 101. We've just put a big sign on our chest that says we have not even gotten out of the starting gate of being believers. We may have been at it for a long time, but we're still in the starting gate. We're still taking remedial lessons over and over and over again. We've failed at Christianity 101. And this doesn't mean there isn't ever a time to leave. There is. Most of us have left a church at some point. This church has received lots of people that have left churches, and and that's okay. There there is a time to leave. That doesn't mean there's never a time to confront. There is. But here's what it does mean. Christians are supposed to be a lot hardier in our love for each other than what many are. People who live in the light of eternity and people who are recipients of God's grace, people who have been forgiven of so much, are supposed to be people who, above all, love each other deeply. So much so 
that we are willing to cover over a multitude of sins. We're to be people who love even when it takes great effort to do so. And so here's a question. Does that describe you? Just be honest with yourself. Does that describe you? It should describe all of us who call Christ Lord. But if it doesn't, it should drive you to Christ. And the prayer should be, Jesus, make me more like you. Jesus, help me to love more like you. Jesus, help me to endure mistreatment more like you. And keep loving. Keep showing grace. Keep covering over. So let's remain committed. Or or if needed, recommit to this kind of love. Let's not allow our love to be fragile. Let's have tough love for each other. People who have been forgiven so much by Christ ought to be able to overlook offenses and cover over the wrongs of others. And so let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people for our own unity and peace. And beyond that, let's be those kind of people as a witness to the world of the kind of resilient, determined, persistent, sacrificial love that is available within the Christian community. Let's be those kind of people. People who live in the light of eternity love even when it requires great effort. And then look at verse 9. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. What to do when the end is near? What to do as people living in the light of eternity? Practice hospitality. You know, the early church could not have existed, could not have functioned without the practice of hospitality. Traveling missionaries had to have places to stay, and the only real options available to them were the homes of Christians. As I'm told that at that time, there were few inns that were available, and the inns that did exist were expensive, filthy, and immoral. Not a great place for a missionary to stay. Expensive, filthy, and immoral. And so they were dependent upon the practice of hospitality of believers hosting them. Additionally, for the first 200 years of Christianity, there was no such thing as a church building such as what we are sitting in here today. The church, the body of believers, met in the homes of believers that had big enough spaces for a meeting place for the assembled congregation. And so the church could not function without members willing to open up their homes and their lives to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as they did that, both the host and the hosted were blessed by hospitality, blessed by the sharing of life, blessed by fellowship. Now the reasons that hospitality was so important then are not usually relevant to our situation here in the United States in the 21st century. But that does not change that the admonition to be hospitable, to, for, that, that our need for hospitality 
uh, is still significant. Hospitality is still something that Christians are called to do, and it is still something that provides great benefit for believers. Very few things communicate friendship like inviting someone into your home. In our time and place, going out to eat approximates much of what makes an invitation into a home meaningful, but there's still something special about that invitation into the home. It, it still is a step beyond just sharing food together, and it communicates something really special. It communicates acceptance to invite someone into your home. And then the acceptance of the invitation communicates acceptance and friendship from the invited to the host. Now, we're starting dinner for six back up. I announced that earlier. And while it isn't exactly biblical hospitality, it, it is a good step in the right direction. It, it really is a good thing. And it's in the ballpark of hospitality. As we say we're willing to be paired with, six other, with five other people and we may not even know them very well. And, and we're willing to do it for the express purpose of starting a friendship, getting to know them, deepening a friendship. And so again, it's not exactly Christian hospitality as we find in the Bible, but it is in the ballpark. And, and so I hope that every one of you who are comfortable doing so in light of everything we've just lived through with the pandemic, that you will sign up for dinner for six. I hope that increasing numbers of people will look at lunch after church on Sundays as a time to connect with other people from church over food. What? I don't know if I want to do this or not but I'm going to. So let's have a show of hands. How many of you on somewhat of a regular basis have lunch after church on Sundays with other people from the church, not just your own family? How many? That's why I didn't want to do it because now I'm discouraged. Let's do it, folks. Let's make lunch after church on Sundays a time where we connect with other Christian people. Amen. Go out to lunch. Have someone to your home. Let's do it. People who live in the light of eternity are people who realize the importance of Christian fellowship, of relationships. They realize the value of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they get a head start on the fellowship that we're going to have with each other forever. They get a head start on it. Those who live in the light of eternity love, even when it requires great effort. They practice hospitality. And then the next thing we find is that they use their God-given gifts for eternal purposes. They use them for the glory of God. We find this in verses 10 and 11. Each one should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, 
so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says, the end of all things is near. Use your gifts to serve others. Administer God's grace in its various forms. Speak the words of God. Serve in the strength of God. And do it all so that Jesus, so that God is praised through Jesus Christ and he receives glory and power forever and ever. People who live in the light of eternity serve in the name of Christ for the glory of God. It is not a maybe. It is not an optional thing. It is not when it's convenient and I feel like it that day. Those who live in the light of eternity serve for the glory of God. Can I tell you a key to joyful service in the body of Christ? And I'm speaking to myself because I don't always live in this place. So, so don't feel like I'm just pointing at you. I, I am in view here. Here's the key to joyful service in the body of Christ. Stop thinking of your service as helping ministry leaders. Somebody should have shouted amen. Stop thinking of your service as helping ministry leaders. Serving because a ministry or a leader needs help. And start believing what is true. Christian service is for an audience of one, God. It is done for this purpose, the glory of God. And we could add, it's done for the well-being of other people. This is a statement that I really like. Christian service is done for the well-being of people and the glory of God. When you're serving in children's ministry, you're not helping Tanya out. (laughs) You're serving for the well-being of children eternal souls who will spend eternity somewhere. You're serving for the well-being of children who need Jesus. You're investing in their eternity. And ultimately, as they come to recognize Christ as Lord and to serve Him and to glorify Him for eternity, what you are serving for is the eternal glory of God. Would that change anything? If we shifted our thinking from I'm helping Tanya out to I am serving the needs of eternal human beings that need Jesus and I'm doing it for the eternal glory of God. When you agree to host and lead a small group, it's not because, well, you know, our church likes to have small groups and so I'm helping out. That's not it. It's for the well-being of people who are going to come to that group. And ultimately, it's for the glory of God. What does Scripture teach us? 
it teaches us that literally everything we do, including sweeping floors, including taking out the garbage, literally everything we do is done unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. Look, we're appreciative for everything anybody does around here. But that is not what it's about. It is about serving for an audience of one, for the eternal glory of God. There's obviously a sense in which when you're serving, you're helping a leader out. But if you look at ministry like that, you're not going to serve for the long haul because you're not thinking of it correctly. You're not actually realizing what it is you're really doing. And until you realize the eternal significance of everything that is done around here, the motivation will never be right. And so the joy will never come with it. But if you understand what you're doing, get the heart motivation right, then we can serve joyfully. Christian service is for God. It is for the benefit, the eternal benefit of other people. And it's ultimately toward the end goal of God being praised through Jesus Christ and receiving glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What to do when the end is near. Those who live in the light of eternity love, even when it requires great effort. They practice hospitality. They use their God-given gifts for the glory of God. And then we find in verses 12 through 19, the next thing, you're going to like this one. I've sensed you've liked them all. You're going to like this one. They accept difficulty as normal. They do not view it as exceptional. As Christians who live in the light of eternity, we accept difficulty as normal we do not view it as exceptional. All of these verses 12 through 19 make this point, but let me highlight just a couple. The first is 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange. This, this is normal Christian life. not to be surprised at trouble. Trouble is not strange. Trouble is part of life. And trouble, painful trials, is definitely part of Christian life. I admit to you I am not very good at this, and I don't think many of us are, but I am getting a little bit better at realizing and accepting that there has never been a golden age of the big C church where everything was trouble-free. Have you ever read the New Testament? These churches were a total wreck. Troubles everywhere. People sleeping with people they weren't supposed to sleep with and, and, and like all kinds of horrible stuff. False teaching 
brothers that were pretending they were brothers while actually stabbing each other in the back. The New Testament was full of trouble. There was never a golden age where the church was trouble-free, and there will never be a golden age of any local church, including this one, where everything will be trouble-free, trial-free, pain-free. Good things and tough things Good things and disappointing things, great things and really troubling things are always happening, running parallel with each other within the big C church, any local church, this church. Why? Because you're here. Let me say it a little more kindly. Because people are involved. Because people are involved. That's why. And that's just the troubles that happen within the church. The painful trials Peter is referring most specifically to here in chapter 4 are the painful trials that come from persecution the church endures at the hands of outside forces, at the hands of the larger culture. Now, I've gone on record here recently saying that I think we're a little loose with the use of the word persecution in our context and I still believe that, but there is no doubt that we are becoming more disfavored and marginalized within the larger culture than what most of us have experienced in our lifetimes. Some people are beginning to experience what might legitimately be called persecution, and I believe that real persecution is likely to be part of the future experience of Christians, even here in these good old United States of America. And so while I want to be careful about the use of that word persecution, there is no doubt that Christians are facing challenges that we've not previously faced in this country. And I think it's going to get worse. And as it does, here is what we should take from what Peter says. It's exactly what he does say. We should not see difficulty as something exceptional. It is a, it's the normal condition of the Christian's life. And it's that way. This is so important for us to understand. It is that way because Christianity and Christians are in direct conflict with the present worldly system and the ruler of that system, Satan. I know we don't talk about him much, and I know Christians get uncomfortable when we talk about Satan. But we really have an enemy. Amen. And the garbage that happens within churches, sometimes it's just us acting ridiculous. But it's not always. A lot of it happens because we have an enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants nothing more than to rip churches apart. How much would we help ourselves within the body of Christ if we would start to realize that much of the garbage that happens among us isn't just something that happens, but it actually has an evil force behind it? And if we would be alert to that, maybe we would be a little less quick to take our ball and go home because we'd realize this is just evidence 
that we are in a battle that has eternal consequences and I don't want the enemy to win this battle because I'm ticked off at somebody. We're fighting spiritual forces with everything we do as a church. What we see is not the whole story. Why Sally Mae is acting crazy might not just be that she's crazy. It might be that the enemy is at work in her life seeking to destroy her and all of us around her. We have to be alert to these things and not allow the enemy to set off these little bombs in the midst of us. We have, we have to be wise. We have to understand what's going on. So what do we do when the end is near? People who live in the light of eternity have the maturity to realize the church is always under attack from within and without. People who live in the light of eternity have the maturity to understand that working with people is inherently messy. And so people who live in the light of eternity have the maturity to accept that problems are normal, not exceptional. Over the years, during challenging seasons we've had as a church, I've occasionally heard people say something like this, I'm just so weary of the problems. I just want it to stop so we can focus on ministry. And the person who I've heard say that more than any other is me. But this is not realistic for any institution that has people in it. And it's especially not realistic for an institution that is constantly under attack from within, from without, from the culture, and even from the enemy himself. And so you might as well just set your mind to this. Trouble will be a normal part of our experience from now until Christ returns. There will never be a golden age of the church where there is no trouble. It doesn't mean the church is falling apart. It doesn't mean we have sucky leaders. It doesn't even mean I'm a bad pastor. Amen, Brian. <laughs> now, it's not impossible that any of those things could come into view at some time. But that should not be our default reaction every time there's trouble in the church. We're in a war. Wars are messy. There's a real enemy. People act crazy. This is what's going on. So we accept that conflict is part of the deal. We don't freak out every time there's conflict and trouble and trials and suffering. 
because we know that it comes with the territory for people who live in the light of eternity and war against an enemy who is bent on destroying us. Look at verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Friends, this, this is living hope. Those who participate in the sufferings of Jesus, there's a day ahead for us when we're going to be overjoyed because his glory is going to be revealed. There's going to be a day when every heartache we experience from staying committed to a messy group of people called the church and every heartache we experience from sharing our faith with those who don't want to hear it and every heartache we experience because the culture is turning against us and every persecution we may ever endure, all of those things are going to be replaced with inexpressible joy when the glory of God is revealed. There's one final thing that we learn about what we should do when the end is near from this text we read today. It's in verse 19. When the end is near, people who live in the light of eternity fully entrust themselves to God. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We're to commit ourselves to God. Fully entrust ourselves to God. Just like Jesus modeled for us when he was on the cross, dying for the sins of mankind, here's what he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I've done what you've asked of me, and now I rest in your loving care for me. When the situation is out of our control, when people mistreat us, when we try our best and it doesn't work out, when we bless someone and we, we, we receive unkindness in return, when the culture turns against us, when other believers disappoint us, when world events concern us, when our health begins to fail us, when the situation is out of our control, we commit ourselves, we fully entrust ourselves to God's care which is what we should have already done even before any of those difficulties visited us. And when we entrust ourselves to God, God's care, we can do so with confidence because as Peter described him, God is our faithful creator. Faithful creator. Years ago, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir recorded a song that I loved. The title of the song is simply, He's Been Faithful. And this song so eloquently proclaimed the truth of God's faithfulness, and I want to share the lyrics to this Truth Pack song now. It said, In my moments of fear, through every pain and every tear, there's a God who's been faithful. 
to me. When my strength was all gone, when my heart had no song, still in love, he's proved faithful to me. Every word he's promised is true. What I thought was impossible, I've seen my God do. He's been faithful. Faithful to me. Looking back, his love and mercy I see. Though in my heart I have questioned, at times even failed to believe, he's been faithful faithful to me. When my heart looked away, the many times I could not pray, still my God was faithful to me. The days I spent so selfishly, reaching out for what pleased me, even then God was faithful to me. Every time I come back to him. He's waiting with open arms. And I see once again, he's been faithful. Faithful to me. Friends, whatever you are facing today, whatever trouble has you at the end of yourself, you can entrust yourself in that situation to God. You can do so because he is your faithful creator and he'll take care of you even when you don't see that he's doing it. Even when you don't understand how he's doing it. And when we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator we can continue to do good even in the midst of all of the difficulty of life. This is what believers living in the light of eternity are called to do. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so we can pray. Love, even though it takes great effort. Practice hospitality. Use our God-given gifts for eternal purposes, for the glory of God. Accept that difficulty is just part of our experience. And fully entrust all of that and fully entrust ourselves to God who is our faithful creator. Let's stand. 